Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is singer, songwriter, and owner of Grace Sound Recording Services, Drew Ryder Smith. But let me start with this. We've talked about this before, but there's only four countries in the world that don't pay artists for radio airplay. That's North Korea, China, Iran, and guess what? The United States. Yeah, you can have a huge hit and not make any money if you're an artist for all the radio airplay that you might get. Well, there's a new bill in Congress, and this is one of many that has been tried over the years. This one is called the American Music Fairness Act, and this wants to pay artists for radio airplay. This is a big deal, and even the U.S. Register of Copyrights and the director of the U.S. Copyright Office supports this idea. It's a tough sell, though, because there's actually a competing act called Local Radio Freedom Act, And this has 195 House members and 24 Senate members in support already, which basically means that the American Music Fairness Act doesn't really have a chance. Now, in all fairness, this is an act that should have been passed 30 years ago when radio was in its heyday and really making the most money. Radio today is dying, at least on the music side. It's mostly a venue for talk, for sports, and for anything other than music. Yeah, there's some music played, but it's not like it used to be. AM is even being eliminated from new cars. Yes, there are survey numbers that say that radio is strong, but its influence is at the lowest it's ever been when it comes to music. So if this passes, and it's unlikely that it will, it's way late in the game and really won't help artists all that much. Now you might think, why would there be no support for this? Well, for one thing, the NAB, National Association of Broadcasters, is very powerful and spends a lot of money for lobbying in Congress. This is why something like this has never been passed over the past 30, 40 years. It's no different today, even though radio is suffering somewhat. So if the American Music Fairness Act ever becomes law, it will be way too little, way too late. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, the Las Vegas Sphere is in the news, and I'm sure you've seen something about it. U2 is in the middle of its 25 performance opening, and it's gotten nothing but great press. The visuals on both the inside and the outside are amazing, but what might be undersold is the audio experience. The venue's state-of-the-art sound system is called Sphere Immersive Sound, and it's powered by a company called Holoplot. The system is being called the world's most advanced concert-grade audio system, 
and it features 3D beam forming sound that can be focused on just about any specific seat throughout the 17,000 seat venue space. Now this is totally mind boggling. There are 1,600 permanently installed Holoplot X1 loudspeaker modules with a total of 167,000 drivers. These are placed all around the sphere. There's two sub-modules. The Module 96 has 96 drivers, and that consists of 18 5-inch drivers and 78 soft-dome tweeters. The sub-module, Module 80, has 80 drivers, with the single 18 subwoofer, 15 5-inch drivers, and 64 tweeters. Now, each individual speaker has its own amplifier, and there are 27,000 or 31,000 watts for each sub-module. That equates to over 48 million watts of audio power that are being aimed at you in the Sphere Dome. Each module can create up to 12 beams aimed in 12 different directions, and they're automatically calibrating, self-updating, and automatically respond to room conditions like temperature and humidity. Some people like going to Las Vegas and other people don't, but it looks like the Las Vegas Sphere is worth the trip to Vegas alone just to see it. And not only just to see it, but to hear it as well, because by all reports, it's the next level in audio reproduction. My guest today is country music singer and award-winning professional songwriter, Drew Ryder-Smith, who's also the owner of Gray Sound Recording in Nashville and Charlotte, North Carolina, working as a producer and senior mixing engineer. Drew is also the author of the Before You Record course, which prepares new artists for their first recording session and walks them through what goes into making a record, parting knowledge that he's gleaned from 15 years in the business. During the interview, we spoke about how songwriting has changed in Nashville, doing remote recording in India, prepping artists for going into the studio, the difference between New York City, L.A., and Nashville session players, opening for Merle Haggard at the Ryman Auditorium, and much more. I spoke with Drew from his hotel room in Charlotte. So tell me about your background and how you got in the music business. Man, I grew up in uh, southern middle Tennessee, so halfway between, about halfway between Nashville and Muscle Shoals. Came from a uh, pretty musically influential family on my mother's side, and uh, they all played some instrument and and sang, and uh, but my father's side was uh, the avid music lover. So I, I really got a lot from both sides. I started playing guitar when I was about 10. That was when I started getting serious about that. And then about 12 or so, I started, uh, started writing songs and just fell in love with that, man. Fell in love with the process and everything about it. And, uh, all these years later, still at it. You do a lot of different things from songwriter to producer to artist to studio owner what do you consider to be your main function i think artists and songwriters is always kind of what comes first for me the other things are what i consider to be a bit of a break it's a creative break and i i love mixing and i love being in the studio i love producing other artists it allows me to still do music, but I'm just using a different part of my brain to do it. 
And uh, it's wild, man, because I've I've noticed when I'm when I'm mixing a song for somebody or an album, if I'm producing a record on somebody, I'm thinking about songwriting, and I'm thinking about performing. And then when I'm writing or performing, I'm thinking about producing other acts and thinking about recording. You know, so it's wild, man. I'm in love with all of it, though. Yeah, I think we're all multitaskers, really. Sure. <laughs> A little bit of ADD in, in every musician these days, so you yeah, do a lot of different sure. things. Okay, so are you in Nashville now? I, right now I'm in Charlotte, uh, but yeah, based out of Nashville, that's right. Yeah, so how did you get from where you grew up to Nashville? Uh, straight up 65, man. <laughs> <laughs> right up the interstate. It was, it was real easy for me. I've got uh, so many of my peers and, and friends are thousand miles away from home so i was really blessed to grow up so close to nashville where uh if, if anything happens you know i could be home in an hour and a half really blessed to be able to do that because man these other guys they you know if they have a family emergency they're gonna scramble you know they're trying to find flights or they're driving 12 hours overnight so uh, that has given me a lot of comfort and t- really taken a lot of weight off uh, still being able to be close to home like that. And I think that as a result of that, it's helped me, uh, to focus more on, on music, uh, and not worry too much about what's happening at home. Because if I get too worried about it, I can just, I can just drop down, stick my head in and say, Hey to everybody. So if you're only an hour and a half from Nashville, then you can almost commute there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I- I did that for a while. I did that for a couple of years, I guess. I, I went back and forth. Man, tra- <laughs> traffic. Uh, I couldn't do it anymore. At the time, it was already bad enough. But, man, you know, traffic at that time was a lot better. And so I would drive back and forth every day. Uh, I did that for a couple of years before I officially moved. How old were you when you moved there? 24, 25, something like that. Did you find that your opportunities were better by being based out of there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, just because it's so saturated, absolutely more opportunities. I think it's it's probably, I, I would guess, Bobby, it's probably the equivalent of trying to be an actor and not living in L.A. You know, I, I think that, um, sure, there's things you can do online and submit things and you can, you know, meet people and that, that sort of thing that are in that circle. But I think it helps a lot if you're just there and you can pop into shows anytime that you want, uh, you can pop into meetings and grab coffee with somebody, you know, in in 15 minutes time. I mean, it's uh, to be able to do that, I think makes a world of difference. When you first moved there, was your goal to be a songwriter or an artist? Really, man, my biggest goal was, was to be a songwriter. Uh, I, I wanted to have success as a songwriter. And then he, um, I, I, I guess I kind of figured, you know, if I could do that, then everything else will fall into place. But the very first publishing deal that I signed, they signed me as an artist writer. So it all ended up happening at once, really. How has songwriting changed? I think, you know, for me, I'm not sure that it's changed a lot. I feel like I, I still have the same process and go through the same motions that I did. Well, I had my first deal 13 years ago and you still, um, you still show up, 
and get in a room with, you know, a couple other guys and write the best song that you can that day. Uh, so I don't think for me it's changed. I keep on hearing stories about not so much in Nashville, although I understand it's changing, but I know in Los Angeles the way it's changed where professional songwriters have always been sort of, well, what's hot? How can we do whatever we're doing for, you know, and tailor it to what's hot rather than just making a great song? And now because of loops and samples and all that stuff, it's it's basically changed everything where the structure of a song is different. You know, sometimes there's no bridges or intros or whatever. Is that influencing you at all? Just the fact that song forms have changed? No, but you know, it used to. I, I used to, to chase what was on the radio. And I, but I was, I, was lucky, I was lucky enough to have some great guys uh, that had been around for a long time early on that had always told me, you know, man, that, that almost never works, you know, because if you're, you know, the, if you're aiming for what's on the radio right now, then you're already behind, yeah. you're, you're, you're late. There was a period, Bobby, for a few years, I guess, probably around, uh, I'm guesstimating, but it was probably around 2013 or so where we had these, uh, track guys, they call them. They came in and these guys, you know, they, they took no part in the song other than, uh, building loops and building tracks while, you know, the other guys, uh, wrote lyric and melody and they just, they sit there with a laptop and a, a pair of headphones. It was a pretty weird time, man. It lasted for a few years, but it, that's, and I, I honestly, I thought that it was going to be around for much longer than it was, but th that has settled down. So there was a period there where writing kind of changed because the, the publishers there wanted you to be with track guys, because you basically, you essentially got a free demo out of it. And it wasn't really free because it was, you know, you were splitting publishing, you know, with someone else, but there was no upfront expense. And I guess their thought on it was, well, if it becomes a hit, it's not going to matter anyway. Everybody's still going to make enough money. But, but yeah, that trend went away and I was happy to see it goes. It was, it was a weird thing. It was very, you know, most of the time it was pretty impersonal. Uh, it was guys that didn't even like country music that didn't grow up on country music, didn't listen to it. And, uh, it, it was wild. It was, it was a pretty wild time, but you know, all that's kind of gone away now. Yeah, it, it's really hard to build a song when it comes to loops because you're limited to the chord changes that you have. Yeah, and, and that's why there's so many songs where you find the chorus is just an extension of the verse with more elements, maybe, but it's the same changes and everything. And if there's a bridge, it, it's you know a breakdown more than anything. So I, I listen to that stuff and I go, "Well, wait, that's not the way songwriting should be." Yeah, yeah, I agree. In all this, then, you got some studio chops. Yeah, yeah, for, for better or worse, yeah. How did that happen? Man, by complete accident. I got Pro Tools right after I got my first deal. I had a buddy of mine built me a, a system, a guy named David Glass. And uh, he's been building, he's built a few computers for me now, I guess, specifically for Pro Tools. But really what I wanted it for was I wanted to make better quality uh, work tapes. Uh, I wanted to have something that I could sit down and record, you know, a clean sounding acoustic guitar and then turn around and do a, a nice clean vocal on top of that. 
and just have a better, because at the time we weren't recording everything on our phones then. I mean, you could, but it sounded better to go buy a digital recorder, but even then it, it still wasn't great. So I just wanted something that I could make better, cleaner work tape recordings out. And one thing led to another, man, I was doing that and not, not trying to get fancy with it or anything else, but you know, I would have guys that would, um, they would come over and they go, well, man, you know, I've been wanting to record some stuff. And then it, it would just turn into a whole thing. You know, well, can we add drums to that? And I went, well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I've got a, a two channel interface, but we'll figure it out. And then, then I started buying, you know, more gear and bigger gear to, to fit the hat and, and it just got out of hand. So <laughs> it's still pretty out of hand, Bobby. Yeah, Drew, that's the way that works. Actually, you never stop. I, I don't think with that. Yeah. Cause there's always something cool. that's that's brand new. Okay. So eventually Greyhound sound became something official then. It did. Yeah. Uh, I guess it was right before the pandemic. Um, I got into a new space and, and finally decided to put a, put a name on it and, and just make a go of it. And, uh, I've, I've recently moved as, as many things have done in, in the last several years on music row, my, the, the building that I was in recently sold. And so, um, that, that was tough, man. Cause I really felt like I had been building on something there, but you know, that's, a, that's Nashville, and B, that's Music Row, and, and C, that's real estate market right now. So I just had to kind of get over it. I haven't been there for a while, for five or six years, to Nashville. Is there any music left on Music Row? Uh, barely, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a few big places. CSAC still there, you know, BMI and ASCAP. Um, and then you've got uh, Curb, and Warner is there, but, and still several little publishing companies that are hiding in there but you know i mean even even eight years ago it was just about nothing but music businesses whether they be publishing companies or studios or record labels and uh it's it's definitely not that anymore i can remember going you know 20 years or so ago and i was amazed at the feel the down-home feel on Music Row where you'd go into these houses and they'd be the publishing companies or they'd be studios or whatever, but it would just feel good. It would feel like, hey, yeah, yeah, we, we can make music here. You know, it, it was far less formal, that's for sure, or felt that way anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how it's changed, man. It's, uh, it's wild, but I, I, think, I think a lot of that has happened in, in so many different industries now. It's it's really just become a different thing. And I think that people have compensated by just saying, well, we may not be on music road, but we are in Nashville and this is music city. So if we've got to move down the road, then so be it. That's fine. And, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's worked out. Okay. It's just, it's, it's strange to me because that's not the, the music road that, uh, I used to drive down going to work. And then I used to drive down when I was aspiring to get the publishing deal. So it's, it's sad in that way, but, uh, they call it progress. I guess that's what it is, man. <laughs> yeah. I saw on your website, the, the Greyhound Sound website that you do remote recording. Yeah. Yeah. We've got the ability to do that now, which is uh, pretty wild. 
it's an amazing thing, man. I mean, you can, I've done sessions in India before and vice versa. It gets a little, it gets a little weird doing stuff that far away because of the time difference. And then like what I learned in India was that, uh, I thought that every time zone was just, I thought it changed just a straight up hour. So it was, you know, central time at six o'clock, Eastern time at seven o'clock on the West coast, it's, you know, four o'clock, but in India, it does a half hour. So they were like, like 11 and a half hours or something like that. It was, it was something really odd and it was really confusing. It, it took us a couple of tries to, before I figured this out. <laughs> and, uh, so it took us a couple of days to even just figure out what, what the right time was that I was supposed to be there. But yeah, it's wild, man. It's, a, it's incredible what you can do, but, uh, I've, I've recorded stuff, you know, I'll go into the studio late at night. It's early morning there, you know, but yeah, you can do it all over the world. It's, it's really incredible how technology is, has carried us. You definitely couldn't do that with a telephone and, uh, a two inch tape machine years ago. So, so do you have a fly pack then? Yeah, yeah, I do. I don't, I don't use that a lot, but, uh, well, I say I don't use that a lot, but that's, that's not true. I'll take it with me everywhere I go just in case. Uh, like I said, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina today, and I, I mixed a, um, a live performance from Jamaica. You know, weird stuff like that, man. Was it one of your performances or, or a client? No, 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 no. It was on someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Is that where you do most of your mixing in Charlotte? Uh, we're, no, 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 no. I, I'm just, I'm just here for business. I played in, uh, I did a TV thing in Richmond, Virginia last week and then played in Roanoke last weekend. I, I did a class over the weekend for the Southwest Virginia Songwriters Association, which was really a ton of fun. Um, we did that. And then yesterday I drove down to Charlotte. I'll be working here, uh, at a studio here during the week. And then, um, this weekend I'll play in Charlotte. I think on Friday night. Okay. Speaking of teaching a course, you, you have a course before you record. So tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, man, it's a, it a, just a fun little thing that I put together. When I started producing artists, what I figured out was that, you know, you know a lot of them were doing their, their very first recordings. And so I had had all this experience through doing artist deals and, and as well as doing tons of demos with you know, because of being with a publisher. So I'd been in the studio a lot. I'd learned so much from that. And so when I started producing these other artists that were, you know, making their, their first recordings, I found myself telling each artist the same information every time. I mean, I need lyric sheets like this and I need it labeled like that. And I need these things on a thumb drive and I need I need this on, you know, a, a large format drive. And I need you to email me these things. I need you to record this. We're going to change that. So let's do that. And it was just this huge list of stuff. And, uh, I, you know, somewhere in the middle of that, I thought, you know, I should really just make like a PDF or something because it's, this gets really old doing this every time. And, and it would take up so much time just prepping artists for going into the studio. And so finally I thought, well, man, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should, I should just make some videos. And from that idea, just, it kind of turned into a course that I, I put online. 
Yeah, that's very cool. And it's true. There are, you know, if, if you don't have experience, you don't know what to do. Well, it's a, and it's a terrifying situation because it all happens so fast. Yeah. You know, you go into a studio with these session guys. I mean, these are not dudes from your hometown. You know, these guys are, they make records every day. That's they're in the business to make records and, uh, and it doesn't take them long to do it. And so, you know, if you don't have experience with that, you go in and, and it, everything happens and then it's just done and you go, my God, what just happened? Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to take anything from that experience. You know, I would say the first few times that, that you're in the studio, it's hard to learn much from it because everything is happening around you so quickly. And there's so much happening and there's, you know, even down to just the, the lingo, just the studio jargon that you're not familiar with. It takes a while to learn all of those things. And, you know, it, it also takes a while to learn exactly what everything that you need to have to be prepared to do that. And I've had people show up, you know, at, at the studio without, without even a, a phone recording. Yeah, they go, oh, I thought I'd just play it in the room. Well, you, I mean, yeah, you can do that, I guess, but you're, you're taking up, that's your time that you're paying for. You know, we could have recorded this ahead of time and had a session leader chart it out. And then, you know, it, with, within, you know, if those guys hear a verse and chorus of it, then they, they've got their charts and they can go in and they can record it. And it'll sound like a record. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, little intricate things like that. They can really stack up and, and that time is money. I'm really surprised at the difference between New York and LA and Nashville session players. And Nashville seems to be, I don't want to say more professional because that's not the case, but they're, they're faster. They get to the point faster and it gets finished faster in New York and LA. It's slower, but mostly because there's more experimentation, I think, where everybody has lots of ideas and you got, and the producer has to sort it out. And sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. But nonetheless, it does take much more time than in Nashville. Nashville, everything, it's like, okay, here it is, boom, 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 it's done. And it's great. That, that's the thing. It, it's, it's not like it suffers at all. The, the music suffers. It, it's, it's great. But it's, it's a, I think, a different mentality of just, you know, let's get down to work. This is what it is. Do it. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I like to, uh, Tim Pierce now has uh, a channel on YouTube and he's, for anyone I'm familiar with him, he's a, he's a really great uh, session guy, does a lot of uh, LA and New York stuff. And He's a friend of mine, so yeah. Yeah, yeah so he's, he's a fantastic player. I'm, I mean, one of the best. And then to hear him talk about, you know, some of that Google, Google dolls stuff that he's played on and, and even, you know, a lot of other records that I've heard him talk about, he's, it's, you never hear a story. I'm sure he, he's got plenty of them, but it's, you never hear a story from him where he says, yeah, well, you know, I went in and I listened to about half the song and I took my chart and I sat down and I played it and that was it. You know, he, he's always, he's searching for something. And he, he will sit there and search for it until he finds exactly what he's looking for and what he's hearing in his head. And he puts in that time and they allow for that kind of time in those cities. And it's, that's an interesting concept to me as well, Bobby. I totally agree. It's not that one is better. One approach is better than the other. It's just that it's different. That's right. I have a really good friend who's a songwriter. She lives out here 
and she records in Nashville all the time. And she brings me these tracks back to mix and they're fantastic. She always amazes me because I'll say, well, how long did it take you to do these five tracks? And she'll go, uh, six hours. <laughs> I'll go, are you kidding? Wow, that's amazing. So, wild, man. I went to a session one, one day over at uh, Jim Moose Brown's house. I don't know if you know Moose or not, but he's been in Nashville for a long time. Great songwriter and also great uh, producer as well. But he he's always lived in Nashville, but uh, he was out with Bob Seger for years. Played keys for him. But uh, Moose has got a great uh, studio there in town. Anyway, I, I went to a session one day, and it was on a Saturday, which is wild. You don't hear of a lot of sessions that are happening on Saturdays, but man, they cut 20 songs that day. And it was just, it was just blow your mind. Yeah, yeah. And they're all great, I bet. Yeah, yeah, they were excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's come back to your studio here a little bit. So one of the things you like to do is mix. Tell me about your mixing, favorite plugins or techniques or anything like that. All of them, man. I love all the plugins. Uh, I use a ton of plugin alliance stuff, a ton of waves as well. Uh, use some other things, native instruments and things like that. But man, I'm really in love with mixing. It's, it's, well, I'll take that back. I'm really in love with mixing other people's work. I, I have a hard time mixing something that I've put together for myself because I think I'm too close to it. And I, and I want to hear everything that's in the track because I know everything that's in the track. I know every detail, every tiny little thing. You just can't make everything prominent. It's just not meant to be that way. So I love doing records and demos and anything else for other people. And I am a plug-in nut. I do have some outboard gear that I love. I've got an old 1178 that belonged to Richard Dodd and bought that from, from him I guess a few years ago now, once he moved to Nashville and decided he was just going to start doing mixing. But, you know, that that 1178 has been on Tom Petty records. I think it was on like the Wildflowers record and it's been on Roy Orbison records and, you know, tons of other great stuff. And that's a really magical piece to me. Uh, I run everything through it uh, just because I feel like it's got some sort of magic in there. And uh, but yeah, I run everything through it and just kind of let it do its thing. When you set it up, is it a four-to-one ratio that you're using to set curiosity? Uh, no, I actually use a 12-to-one ratio on, on the 1178. And there's something about the 12-to-one on, on that 1178. And to be honest, I don't have a ton of experience with other 1178 units. I've got a ton of experience with 1176s. The blue face, silver face, black face, all, all of those. I, I know all of those really well, but I had not messed with an 1178 a lot uh just the 1176 and on the 1178 i have found at least for for everything that i've done a 12 to 1 ratio it just for whatever reason just works uh and it has the you know it's got the you can link it and unlink you know the left and right sides it's a really fun little piece but uh, i think I, I typically use it i'll leave it unlinked and, and run a 12 to one ratio. And I know about how much to push into it just to get it activated, you know? So, and it has cool little things that I've, I've picked up and in the time that I've had it where I've, I've noticed that if I link, if, if I link the, the channels back together, just make it a stereo compressor, then 
with both channels linked kind of narrows my mix a little bit. I love little things like that. Whether I want my mix narrowed or not, it's just, I love knowing things like that about a piece of equipment. Uh, it seems, it seems it's kind of an intimate thing to know about it. You know, like you, you really start recognizing some of the really fine details of it. Uh, for me, I like to find stuff like that in gear and even in plugins and then use it to my advantage. I always uh, heard the story and I can never confirm it for some reason that Jeff Lynn would, and all of the ELO stuff and everything that he did, his secret was an 1178 in the nuke position, all the buttons in. Oh, wow. I could never replicate that sound somehow. It's like, it doesn't, doesn't work for me. It's like, how is he making that, that work? But I've never been able to, to verify that. Someday I will. That's funny, man. I will, um, I haven't spoken with Richard since I bought that, that piece of gear from him, but I know that Jeff had, and I've got a list. It's in Nashville actually, but I've got a list of records that, that went through that 1178. There was, there were one or two Jeff Lynn records that went through there. It's funny because it was like, um, when I saw the list, it was Tom Petty, and then I noticed Trappin' Wilburys, and then I noticed that Richard had used it on Roy Orbison, and then Jeff Lynn, and I was like, man, there's a pattern here. Yeah, like, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it was it was like he, you know, he mixed the Wilburys and then everybody else, and, and a couple of George Harrison records, and I don't know which came first. I don't know if he was doing those guys individually first, and then did when the Wilburys came around, they, they called him, but, uh, either way it's, it's cool to have all those names on it, but I have, I have tried the new position. I've tried the all buttons in on it. And, uh, and it's pretty, the 1178 is pretty touchy. Uh, it's, a it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Even I was expecting it to be more like the 1176 and in some ways it is. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of its own creature. It still has that 1176 sound They they do sound similar, but they react very differently. I don't want to forget about this. Tell me about opening for Merle Haggard at the Ryman. Man, that was a crazy experience. To play the Ryman Auditorium is is such a wild thing anyway, you know, just in and of itself. But to get to play there with Merle Haggard was even more special. He uh, he had, I, I don't recall if he had just recorded one of my songs or if he was about to record one of my songs, but but either way, I got to open for him at the Ryman. It was a sold-out show. Haggard always did two nights at the Ryman. He, he kind of had to because the first night uh, that he would do, it was all industry people. So it was like the fans couldn't even get to see him perform at the Ryman. And so he, he started doing two nights there for that reason. And I, I played on night one. And so I got to play in front of tons of my peers and, you know, industry vets and it was a cool thing john prine was in the crowd that night mm, wow and, uh, he's a big hero of mine there's uh, tons of people but yeah it's really special to be there and you know my my mom was on one side of the wings and then merle hackard was on the other so it was a special night yeah no kidding hard to top that yeah it really is yeah tell me about your new ep it's my first self-titled ep it's crazy writing songs as long as I did without putting anything out. And I, I finally, I finally figured out that I was not putting out my own music. Uh, just, I think it was all fear-based. 
you know, I, because I had, I'd been moderately successful as a solid writer and I thought, well, you know, I, I've been on the road, I've done all these shows, I've had my songs reported by all these other people, but I've never put anything out and it, I'm, you know, somewhat respected uh, amongst my peers in my industry as a songwriter. So what are they going to think if I put something out and, and it, and it sucks and it falls on its face, you know? And, and I finally figured out, man, that, that, that just doesn't matter. You know, what matters is just putting out music. And so last year I started putting out songs and, and then this year we put out an EP and it's really been a ton of fun. It's, it's been great. And we've got, uh, we got stuff that's sitting on the shelf right now. that's all but ready to go. And I'm, I'm excited to, to get it back out. Being an artist. Yeah, being an artist. As it should be. All right, Drew, last question then. What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? I, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that you just got to show up. And showing up doesn't mean being in Nashville. It's, you know, wh whatever it is that you're doing, if you want to be an artist, do whatever you can every day to, to book shows or to get better, to own your craft. To, you know, if you want to be a songwriter, then write every day. But it, none of those things improve if, if you're not showing up and if you don't have the self-discipline to get up and try to be better at what you want to do uh, every single day. And in the moments that you can't be working on it, you should at least be thinking about it. You know, so that would that'd be what I would suggest. You can find out more about True and Gray Sounds recording at truewritersmith.com. That's True Writer Smith, D R E W R Y D E R S M I T H, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.